Welcome to what the if I hope you're all awake. If you're not, this is going to be a pretty surreal uh, show. <laughs> or, or totally appropriate. Or, yeah, or totally appropriate, indeed. Um, we'll get to our if in a moment. Suffice to say, it has something to do with sleep. Um, so, you know, get your coffee. Oh, I think I forgot my coffee. Well, this is going to be a weird show then, isn't it? Um, well, yeah. um, Matt. Stanley is here, professor from New York University, professor of historian of science. How are you, sir? I'm a little sleepy. A little sleepy. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Also here, Gabby Panicia from Rockefeller University. How are you today? I'm doing good. I have my coffee, so, uh, you know, at least one of us is, is awake for the podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you're the designated driver. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we have, uh, I just want to touch, touch in uh, with the mailbag first. The, uh, w, w, WTIF, um, country band, hoedown band, bluegrass band. They don't know what they are. They play all genres. They're genre fluid. Uh, and... We got a very nice uh, follow-up email Woo. from um, Rude, uh, Rude Smith, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly, Rude, who, who, um, who was, uh, had his if-ift last week, and um, it was about what if we were, uh, what if we could see neutrinos? And I highly encourage you to uh, check out that episode if you didn't hear it, last week's episode um, was pretty surreal and stellar and fascinating yes. basically you, you need yeah. yeah epic indeed you need eyes um we realized that are sixty thousand. well you need to be sixty thousand feet tall to to uh, get on this ride basically um twice light of mount everest it's a pretty pretty cool show anyway root says loved your dissection of the if i brought up to you and by the way root submitted that to us as all of you can if you got an idea feedback at whatif.com or just go to whattheif.com and type it right there on the homepage. You can send us your ideas. Rude says, I loved your discussion of the if I brought up to you. As always with the show, uh, I had a lot of laughs. That's good. I think that's important. Uh, kudos for your take on the matter. Uh, there's a pun there. I don't know if you intended that on the matter because it was about matter. I realized that maybe I was a bit brief in my previous email having to quickly hammer it in on my phone in a crowded streetcar while commuting. Well, that's cool. That's so here's, <laughs> here's some more about who he is. And so, yeah, we, and by the way, I'm very interested to know who are all of you. Tell us. Um, and Ruth says he's from the Netherlands, that quirky country that loves to do things below sea level. Uh, definitely addicted to science fiction, Douglas, Am Douglas Adams, Hamilton, that kind. I think he means um, Peter F. Hamilton, um, not probably Alexander Hamilton, although who knows, earlier, earlier era. Uh, and love to ponder about the fabric of the infinite small and, lar and infinite large. I'm old enough to remember Space Oddity from the radio, 
Aha, classic. And the moon landing. Wow. Early days of space science when we had still a little clue of things in the great wide open. And he says, it has always intrigued me how scientists can come up with those crazy ideas that are still so convincing that people actually spend billions to test it. In fact, that is probably the entire, that is what's called job security, I think, for Rockefeller University Mm -hmm. uh, and New York University and all the others. Um, And obviously, the elusive neutrino was one of my favorites to ponder. What a weird article. By the way, he enjoyed, he says, I, nice take on the three neutrino flavors and the notion of colorblindness. I have, he says, I happen to be colorblind and root. I am also colorblind. So shout out to all us colorblind people. Uh, again, I love your show. Love the humor. Love the surprising takes on the subjects. Frantically browsing through the back episodes. Good fun, he says. Thank you. Thank you very much, Root. We really, really appreciate that. Um, if you think like Rude does, by the way, and Rude, if you hadn't already, um, drop us drop us a review. Yeah, tell the world about that uh, using your app, um, whether it's iTunes, Apple Podcast, uh, Google Play, Spotify, whatever it is. Uh, leave us a review uh, if you enjoy it. That'd be great. And now, speaking of people writing in, one of our greatest ifers. I mean, if there's a hall of there. At the moment, there isn't even a Hall of Fame, but when we do build it, it's going to be built around Bill. Mm-hmm. Wherever he is. Wherever he is. And um, Bill writes in from Winchester, Virginia. Oh, boy. Bill, I hope that's appropriate music for you in Winchester. And Bill says, ah, this isn't Philip and Matt. This is an item in which Gabby might take some interest. Indeed, and I did. So, Mm-hmm. And you did indeed. So, uh, do you want to read it, Gabby? Uh, what sure. Does Bill say? Up real quick. Yeah. Uh, the residents of my city, Winchester, Virginia, experienced the, Sp- the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920, like most other locations around the world. Something curious, however, happened for a couple of years after the pandemic, roughly 1920 to 1922. Our town experienced an epidemic of what they locally called sleeping sickness. Doing a bit of research on the sleeping sickness, I find that this follow-up illness was quite common in many parts of the world. In the Winchester area, there were a number of deaths attributed to the sleeping sickness. Some sources then and now link the sleeping sickness to the earlier flu pandemic, and some sources are non-committal on the link. The sleeping sickness was, itself, often fatal and was characterized by a profound and long-lasting lethargy. I would be interested in learning more about the relationship between the flu pandemic and this follow-up pandemic of sleeping sickness in the early part of the 20th century. Thanks for the fabulous episode on block time. The best explanation of the idea for the non-physicist I've ever heard. And then keep on ifing, super duper ifer, Bill. Which, indeed. Yeah, I think he's right. indeed super duper ifer. Oh, he's now like super duper 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 whooper duper bebop a lula ifer. And so, what the if... There was a pandemic of the sleeping. Oh, wait. We should really. What if there was a pandemic of the sleeping sickness? There we go. I didn't want to wake anybody up. I gotta be considerate of all those who uh, are still ill with the sleeping sickness. Although, on the other hand, actually, if it's sleeping sickness, it means that. uh, they don't, you know, they, they won't wake up or they're, they're so tired. So actually. It did take a lot to wake them up. Apparently. Yeah. So rock and roll. 
uh, not hindered by the sleeping sickness. Um, so Matt, Matt, what do you, let's begin. Uh, what we do is here, we, we take a, uh, we take an idea and we run with it. So for instance, what, how do we begin? I think we sort of begin sort of by defining the if. Right. Yeah, so it seems like in this case we're uh, dropping a new pathogen into uh, Winchester, Virginia. Um, <laughs> so the Winchester probably, flu. <laughs> yeah, actually, we should probably move it up here to to New York City for um, yeah. maximum effect. Uh, but yeah, Andromeda strain style, we're uh, we're dropping a, a new mysterious pathogen into our city, and then we're going to see what happens. Well, this is uh this is an old school one though. This is an older mm-hmm. pathogen, so this is I feel like a little bit more. Um, I don't know, uh, James S.A. Corey uh, proto-molecule, maybe. Oh, nice. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, somebody is uh, uh, digging in um, a landfill on Staten Island and accidentally pulls up an, an ancient pathogen. Um, perhaps the remains of someone who escaped from Winchester, Virginia, 100 years ago. Yeah, now, can that have, can that, speaking of that, um, is that something that can happen? Can an old so we know the stories of like, oh, there are labs that have copies of, you know, diseases from eras gone by. Is it possible for a virus or a pathogen, as you say, to to have been simply buried in the ground and comes back? Um. So for a human pathogen, something that require a, a human pathogen that's not a bacteria, so something like a virus or like a prion, um. Those can be frozen. So we've uncovered ancient viruses in Arctic ice. Um, But most of the way that we get extinct viruses or very, very old viruses is we actually pull them from um, samples of tissue from something that's dead where it's just fragments of the virus. So I'm actually a really big fan of this sort of um, virientology, this virus paleontology thing that we can do. Um, oh, that's cool. Virientology. Oh, it's not actually called that at all. Oh. I think paleovirology is the name because I do know someone who has done that also, um, which paleovirology is just, it's dope. It sounds great. I want that as it a title. Sound fun. Yeah. It sounds um, like a job on the enterprise. It does. The paleovirologist. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can, we can take p- bits from, from tissue of something that's dead. So for example, um, we actually did recreate the 1918 flu to try to figure out why it was so bad. Uh, fun fact, it was avian-derived, and it infected way deeper in our lungs than normal flu, um, which made it harder to transmit, but also way deadlier. Um, and we did revive it from uh, some samples that were saved of people who were sick, and I also believe from some light gray bro- grave robbing up in Alaska. Um, I think it was the combination thereof that enabled us to get it and do some reverse genetics and build it again. And then be like, ah, this is why it was so bad. And then yeah. seal it up in the laboratory somewhere and never touch it again. So, it, yeah, yeah. So it, it, can, it can be brought back in a way. I mean, they had to do a lot of intentional work in this case to do it. But It has to be uh, Frankenstein more so than just like thawing the caveman out of the ice block. All right. Right, right. So um, what, though, what might be the most likely way for this uh, to get to New York and um, what exactly is it exactly? (laughs) What is it is a question that people have been trying to answer since this happened. So a combination of really just like fun factors. So uh, for anyone wondering, sleeping sickness is sort of the colloquial term. It is not 
what we know of now more as sleeping sickness, which is African trypanosomiasis, which is a disease from a small parasite. Um, the epidemic of sleeping sickness is also called um, encephalitis lethargica, essentially a brain disease that made you sleepy is what that kind of translates to. And we don't really know 100% what it was caused by, but there are a lot of theories. So one is that it was caused by the flu, um, either by the flu infecting the brain somehow or by an autoimmune reaction. That one's not really favored um, because the connection is is heavily um, just sort of coincidental, circumstantial, like, oh, this happened. This was a major thing. Um, we didn't really know about viruses until like the 1930s. Um, so during the 1918 flu pandemic, we didn't even know that the flu was a virus. So people didn't really know to look for viruses. Oh, wow. Um, based on some cases which people have classified as modern encephalitis lethargica, it's thought that it could be autoimmune in some way, meaning their body attacks um, their hindbrain. So this affects the sort of lizard brain part of your body that just keeps you alive, affects heart rate, um, sleeping, uh, just the stuff that you don't have to think about. That's your hindbrain. And um, the other theory is that it was a virus, which there is some support for based on the fact that um, people have tested for, you know, flu uh, RNA in the bodies of old encephalitis lethargica patients, you know, digging up tissue and they can find flu. Uh, but looking at brain samples, they found something that looks like it might be an enterovirus, which I think is pretty fun. Ooh, what's enterovirus? A virus that interrogates you. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I believe it's, uh, they're called that more because they tend to be uh, in some ways gastrointestinal. Um, so I think a lot of them are transmitted mm -hmm. fecal oral, which is gross, but it happens. Um, and it includes, that family includes polioviruses, echoviruses, and uh, Coxsackie A and B viruses. Whoa. Uh, and so it appears in the city and I guess, Matt, so I suppose yeah, we have the, to what's choose. The first thing we, what's the first thing we notice after it's been, um, uh, introduced? <clears throat> where do we, where do we first spot it? I feel like we're going to be spotting it, you know, in, uh, it, I couldn't find anything that said it targeted a particular age group. Um. So I think it's going to be we're, we're going to have a people a lot of people coming in with sort of this mystery encephalitis. Um, so the disease presentation is characterized by high fever, sore throat, headache, which are kind of general. But then you get, you know, some of the, the weirder ones, lethargy, double vision, um, just like catatonia. They're really like out of it. Um, and eventually these people go into a complete coma. So if uh, you're getting hauled into the hospital with someone who's in a complete coma, I I think that's gonna that's gonna turn some heads. That seems right. Yeah. Um, okay. And uh, I guess I'm not quite sure on the the etiology of this. Is this gonna be like everybody on a particular train on the A line is suddenly going to go into the hospital together, um, or individuals popping up all around Manhattan? No, I don't know. I based on some of my reading, there was like part of the reason why I was confusing about trying to figure out what this thing was was because the transmissibility seemed weird. So for example, there was like one family where there was someone who had like chronic encephalitis lethargica. They were sick for months and no other members of the family got sick. But there was, I think, an orphanage where one person got sick and then like three quarters of the rest of the orphanage got sick within a week. Um weird. 
Yeah. So my bet is it's transmitted by some un- unusual route. Like if it's if it is fecal oral, it's going to be transmitted more around people who work with like I don't know maybe the elderly or kids. Um, okay. But I feel like maybe maybe we could start with a cluster. There's one cluster that pops up. And it's like I would also say, considering some of the dorms I've lived in, yeah. Could that's also right. be that. Yeah, yeah that's right. Dorm seems a likely target for a cluster, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, so it appears uh, <laughs> I had an image of a train pulling into a station. So you mentioned the A train, <laughs> Matt, which a famous train, by the way, a wonderful song. And uh, it's the express train uh, up to Harlem. So it, it has one of the longest runs without stopping. Uh, I could imagine it leaving Columbus Circle. Everybody mm-hmm. seems okay. It arrives at. Um, oh, I'm hearing myself. Weird. Uh, it arrives at 125th Street, and everybody's asleep. Could it be like <laughs> that? No, it doesn't hit that fast. Doesn't hit that fast, but I think you know I like that image, so we can just we can keep that of you know the train doors open up and everyone is right. knocked out and right and you got to call in the uh. Including the guys who were doing the, uh, um, they do break dancing, and they jump around the poles and all that. <laughs> the Showtime guys are all asleep. <laughs> they fell asleep hanging from the uh, poles, and uh, that would be pretty impressive. Still playing. It'll be a, the yeah, music is always playing. Yeah. Yes, and the tape is playing very slowly. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I just turned this into a seventies. Uh, sci-fi so in fact 70 there'd be a mixture of like yeah yeah like escape from new york kind of thing and right. the um, end of the yeah. yeah exactly um so it sounds like it doesn't here's a real question so actually we just we're we're, we're approaching the year anniversary of uh the lockdown actually it's i think it is i think it was the 16th just passed, right? yeah. 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 yeah year anniversary of plague prime yeah, when we stopped uh, going, I actually was looking at my Google Maps timeline. I don't know if anybody, any of you guys do this, mm-hmm. but like, right, you can record where you've been, which I find fascinating. And so I do that. Um, and you can see the, you know, my usual loops around New York or whatever. And then all of a sudden it narrows to just this one coffee shop back and forth. And then it narrows <laughs> to just my house on the 19th. So March 19th, I think the cafe finally was like, they, they, they no longer could do anything. And they just gave up. Um, really bizarre, bizarre time. So would it be like that? Let's assume it is our current level of science. You know, it's happening now. Right. And so I think one of the reasons that was able to happen, actually, for all the stuff that went wrong and the criticism of how the the pandemic has been managed, absolutely on and on and on. Nonetheless, we did have the ability to say, shut it down. Right. At at some point, they said, shut it down. Would this raise the alarm like that? Or is it perhaps that one of the more deadly things about it is that it would sort of sneak in? I think, fortunately, this thing does not sneak. It is a very, very, it is a very straightforward presentation. Um, You know, the reason why this coronavirus was able to spread so much was because it was, you know, there was such a decent proportion of people who are asymptomatic, thought they were fine and then kept going about their day. Um, This, you can't be asymptomatic, but fortunately, you also can't, you know, if you're in a coma, 
you're not doing too much to spread this to everyone at your neighborhood grocery store. Um, so I think point. that there's sort of the advantage of, you know, people take themselves out of the equation when they're sick with this. But um, but, but actually, it's interesting to say that because I feel like, yeah, by the time they get to the coma, but what wasn't the dangerous thing about the COVID-19 thing was that before you got sick, you were still able to um, transmit it. Yeah, based on the low, what I'm going to hazard is a low R naught of this, which essentially is the reproductive rate of, of the virus. Again, assuming it's a virus, um, I'm going to hazard a guess that it's probably pretty low. So it's probably not too much of an. I, I don't think that's going to be as much of an issue. I think actually, if this broke out today, we'd have a decent time containing it. Uh, I think it would probably be something like a SARS or a MERS panic. Um, and the entire scientific community would would mobilize, um, but I think I think we'd probably be able to contain this, and it would, you know, we'd be studying it as much as we could, but maybe we'd run into the, some of the same problems we did with, you know, SARS one, where there just weren't enough people infected to really get a good grip on what the hell this thing was at a certain point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even Ebola. I remember when Ebola, there was a period there where people were showing up in the U.S. with Ebola, including a block away from me at a bowling alley. Uh, and then there was all this freak out, you know, unfortunately. It's interesting because at the, up until COVID-19, is when you were talking about the SARS thing, and you reminded me that, like, yeah, I forgot that we'd had these sort of warnings come around. And then was it with SARS or MERS, I think, that all of a sudden we had uh, Purell uh, hand sanitizing dispensers appeared everywhere. Is that what brought them to us? What I, I mean, last maybe thing a was? little. It was, it was funny. I was talking with um, Lin Fa Wong uh, yesterday, who's one of the world's leading experts on bat immunology. Whoa. And this poor guy has been on the forefront of every single zoonotic outbreak. So he was on the forefront for Hendra virus, Nipah virus, Ebola virus, SARS-1, MERS, SARS-2. <laughs> and maybe I just we feel- stay away from him. Maybe that's the, that's the problem. <laughs> I, I just feel like this poor guy has got to be like, he, he never gets a rest. He's yeah. in Singapore, so all these American scientists that want to talk with him, including my, my class of virologists, keeping him up until like, you know, 1 a.m. because we have questions. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and when you say he's on the forefront, do you mean that like he hears about something and he goes to goes there to find out what it oh, is? Oh, yeah. He had, I think after SARS, he was part of the World Health Organization delegation wow. um, to, to look at that, which was kind of important, too, because, you know, people look at you know, world health delegations as they're trying to necessarily solve where it came from. But usually one of the things that it does is it just forges a lot of contacts between scientists in the country where it broke out and then the scientists elsewhere who may have access to different equipment. Mm -hmm. And then that's where they get, you know, really, really good science done is usually like a year later when they're able to use all that, all those connections and become kind of like a mini consortium. Yeah, that's cool. really, if that's not a Discovery Channel show yet, that should be, right? virus mm -hmm. hunters oh it should be i would i i know it's super dangerous but i would love to do that and it's it's funny all the photos of it are people fully gowned up like bsl4 level and then they're going into bat yeah. caves and so it looks really <laughs> really far out yeah that sounds amazing so yeah so like i said i remember the, the the last time we had a near pandemic or potential pandemic um all of a sudden these these hand sanitizers showed up everywhere and i was like a lot of people like, ah, oh, come on. It just seems, you know, like that I was like, they're just trying to make money off this or whatever is going on. And um, 
then so it, it, the the Purell dispensers in our building they lasted. They're still here. They ran dry. People stopped refilling them, and then this whole COVID nineteen thing came around, and it's like, oh, oh, okay. This so that this happening now could have been what that previous thing was like. It was no joke. You know, mm-hmm. um, very interesting. So now one of the interesting things that happened with COVID is we got a, a vaccine was developed really fast. Yeah. Um, certainly by historical standards, uh, even if it's taking a little while to get out to people. Um, can we imagine that's going to happen with any new virus that pops up these days? Oh, yeah. Like one of the things that was blowing my mind a little bit, because um, I guess I just never realized what the math was about it, is it took us five days. No, it took us 48 hours to have an entire sequence of the genome. We knew that this was a virus again in like 48 hours, which is insane. It took us how many years to figure out what HIV was? It took us years and years to figure out, you know, what the hepatitis viruses were. Mm-hmm. So the fact that our turnaround was so insanely fast, that's the future of science is that, you know, instantly we can sequence these things and be like, we know what we're looking at. Wow. Yeah. And it isn't just the history of knowledge. It's the techniques that are used, right? Yeah. 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 It's the techniques. Yeah, that so we, can, we can sequence the, uh, the, the virus right from the start. So really pull it apart to its its essential elements and figure out how it works. Yeah. Um, so what's something... Is, oh, go ahead. The, the trick is figuring out how to get our approval process and social acceptance of the vaccines um, up to speed with the actual creation of it. Because right. it used to be, you know, like Gabby said, you know, it takes a couple of years to figure out what a virus is and a few years to figure out a treatment for it and then a few years to figure out how to distribute it. And that's all kind of on the, the same uh, time scale. Uh, but now the timescale of the creation of the vaccine itself is so much more rapid to figure out how to synchronize everything else with that. Yeah. And I got to say, being in the middle of actually getting getting close to what looks like hopefully the end of this pandemic, or at least being able to open up society a bit more. Um, I don't want to do this if <laughs> we'll do it a little, we'll do it maybe a year or two from now. But like a serious if is if this had ha- if this if COVID-19 had hit. How many years ago, so Gabby, when this this technology came up that we were able to do, how many years ago, how far back do we have to go to get to a point where if this had happened, we it would have been more like um, the length of time it took to figure out AIDS? Oh, not that far, honestly. Um, I think like we could, st- we probably still could have figured out it was a virus, but sequencing an entire genome was much more of a hassle. Um, so I think if this was something even as early as like, you know, the early 2000s, it would have taken us probably like six months. I mean, maybe maybe with all the world scientists on it, it would have been faster, maybe something like, you know, two or three months. But it, it we wouldn't have known exactly what we were looking at for a longer period of time uh, right. than currently. And I think if you went as far back as, you know, um, maybe the 90s again, we it would have taken us even longer. It's like almost exponential. How much and the vaccine would, would have been years. Much, yeah. yeah. Like, so the, the idea is that we, we really came extremely close to having this last four years, last FOR years. Um, yeah. So <laughs> the cat had to be let in. That's how, you know, it's a podcast. And so, uh, sleeping sickness. Here's now. I just want to jump to the image. So, if it hits you that fast, that 
in the how long do you think it takes to get for the subway to get from 59th street to 125th it's probably 10 minutes less than 10 minutes probably right um yeah really like reason yeah 10 15 minutes anyway let's call it 15 minutes everybody's asleep that would be so uh what do you call that gabby uh so effective or so fast moving you know, I'd be really stunned because that would have really fascinating implications for biology. No, I don't think ten <laughs> minutes is usually the scale on which okay. you know viruses work. Right. Uh, but that would be fascinating. You got to you got to look at the transcription in that thing. Maybe uh, maybe if you studied that, you would probably have a nice another wave of interesting molecular biology techniques come yeah. out of that. Right, like, right. right. Yeah. If all the biologists didn't fall asleep. Yeah, if we didn't knock out at our dent at our benches, then yeah, then then yeah. we'd be better at molecular biology for studying right. it. So um, let's. So it seems a little ridiculous. So Bill, Bill was Bill was asking a more serious question, and Bill is you know being super duper duper bebabalua differ level deserves full respect. So it wouldn't hit. Let's, it'd be more realistic. It would take a few days, you think, to present. Yeah, I think a couple of days. Right, and so um, at a certain point, enough people would, I guess, be showing up at the hospitals or passing out. Yeah. Wherever. And um, it would become an alarming thing. Um, how quickly on, on a reasonable scale, you know, would it really be like, whoa, this is out of control? I think if it had if it chanced to get to a big city, like if this is New York and this is happening and it's getting into the city that never sleeps. Oh, warfare. By Chicago coming after us. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I think that in a city is when you'd see probably. I think in a city is when you sort of get the alarm raised. Not only because more people are getting infected, but also that there is a high density of people coming to the same hospitals. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in a yeah. rural area. Yeah. Um, you might not have many people, but they there might be some discrepancy in which hospital they go to, um, or even mm -hmm. if it's one hospital serving like a three county area. There might not be enough people in that those three counties to to really set off, you know, a crazy alarm. But if it gets into a place like you know New York City, you know, three blocks of people could be a, an extremely significant number of people. Yeah, mm -hmm. and again, yeah. it's 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 so weird to be able to say, well, in the pandemic, less less than a year ago, you know, there was there's a hospital here uh, in Brooklyn that um, had ambulances lined up for blocks. I mean, it's just bizarre, waiting to drop people off. Freakish. So something like this happens. Um, so people are falling. The, it's kind of comical, though, because people are falling asleep. It, how deadly was this disease? Or yes. was it just you got a good rest? I, I, was it was it holiday so there were... disease, if I may dare. Please sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there were sort of two forms of it um, that were recognized. One form, which was sort of the canonical sleepy sickness um no joke some people called it sleepy sickness which i think really really undercuts the terror of this disease um the death the mortality rate was actually around 50 percent for the other Whoa. form well for the other form which was um it was actually more hyperactive it was kind of weird um it wasn't characterized as much by sleepiness although it could progress to coma but a lot of these people got sort of like mania um their sleep cycle would reverse uh so they were asleep during the day awake at night um, and that had about a mortality rate of 40%, but the risks of long-term neurological complications were a lot higher. So a lot of people there developed, 
um, stuff later, um, like psychosis, hallucinations, and um, not kidding. Apparently, one of the symptoms of chronic encephalitis lethargica was excessive puns. So, <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, Somebody I get a medic to Seth Shostak. That's extraordinary. Wow, that is really a great litmus test for a disease. Someone says too many puns, and you're like, "You've got it." Oh, <laughs> man. Isolate this person immediately. Yeah, well, get you know, get them to HBO. Get a special. Get a comedy special going. I'm imagining someone makes one too many puns, and uh, the containment squad from Monsters Inc. just jumps them. <laughs> like yeah. this yeah. So fifty percent now. What's a, a like? Um, I think I'm correct that it was. It was alarming that COVID-19 is like 2% mortality, is that right? Yeah, it's like between 1% and 2%. It really depends on hospital saturation. And I feel like with mortality, one of the things is we actually respond very well to viruses that kill a lot of us um, because we're good at being like, this is a problem and convincing other people that this is a problem. Yep. Um, so things like Ebola, Hendra, and Nipah virus, which have really high mortality rates, we're very good at being like, okay, this is a problem, locking everything down. Um, and things like SARS-CoV-2, where the problem was because so many people were getting infected, that one or 2% mortality rate was blowing up faster than, say, a 50% mortality rate for a more deadly but more containable virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Matt, what does the world, what does the city look like with so many people now, it was called sleepy, but were they asleep or is it just that they were in a coma? So they were actually asleep, which they were is really asleep. Cool. It was so because it affects the part of, you know, your lizard brain, hind brain that represses your urge to sleep. These people were perfectly lucid if you woke them up. And if anything, actually a little bit disgruntled that you woke them up. Um, but people who, you know, were we're stuck in this cycle, describe months and months of months of dream and nightmare and Whoa. that they were just stuck in dream and that they, at a certain point, realized eventually they couldn't wake up, which is terrifying that they're fully coherent um, and are able you know, to have a brief conversation with you when you wake them up before, bang, they're out again. Well, I think so. I think we've got a, a very specific public health job now, which is wandering the city, waking people up. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Ironic wake, for New York, we now have to work extra hard to wake people. Wake them up, make sure they eat something, drink some yeah. water, they go back to sleep. Um, you just, uh, yeah, you spend your days. We've got a, um, uh, a, instead of um, exposure trackers, we have poorly paid people, graduate students probably, um, whose job it is to just uh, walk around and spend their time waking everybody up. That is kind of fun. Yeah, actually, I got to say that, you know, during every every disaster, which unfortunately we've had uh, all too many of well, since I've been living in New York, um, as uh, my all my friends who are improv comedians, of which I was officially a part for quite a while, um, just thinking, wow, we're just like, we have nothing to do. Eventually, we could put together charity fundraisers, and that was the best. But here, this would be the per – so there's a group, by the way, called – created from someone from UCB, at least, you know, um, called Improv Everywhere. I think they're now mm -hmm. all over the place. So I can imagine, you know, they would do flash mobs and they would do whatever. So I imagine, yeah, the wake up crew, you know. Oh, and then the morning news or the morning, the morning zoo. I mean, the guy who does morning zoo, you know, that he'd be like, he'd be like the Dr. Fauci. He's literally saving people's lives by keeping them from sleeping. 
That's I can right. imagine it's really an, like an oasis for the pranksters who want to like the hand in the bowl of cold water kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I imagine yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. an oasis for that. They can run yeah. free. Frat, frat brothers finally have a role <laughs> in society uh, doing their, you know, society wide hazings. Um, so uh, as this grows huge, okay. Lots of people falling asleep, whether they're asleep or dreaming or whatever, but they're basically, for those who are awake, they appear, the others appear asleep, right? Um, what does, Matt, as you, as you go through the city, what do you see? Well, I'd imagine every horizontal surface has somebody sleeping on it. Um, wow. So they'll finally put the benches back uh, into the subway. So there's convenient places for people to sleep. Uh, Finding a spot on the subway trains is going to be a huge pain because everybody's stretched out sleeping. Trains, um, just trains traveling endlessly full of people sleeping. Mm-hmm. And But every station, every station has uh, uh, people whose job it is to wake everyone up as they come into the station. The train pulls right. in, they get on the train, wake everybody up, get off again. Um, yeah, wake up, this is your stop. Um, you'd have to start wearing wake up, a wake up. This isn't your stop, but I don't want you to die. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Well, you, you, or you'd wear, you know, when you got on the train, you'd, you'd be given a little sticker you put on you, which says your stop so that somebody yeah, then wakes nice. you up and okay. takes you to your stop. Um, yeah, here's what basically it evolves into a society. It's so out of control, but society has to move on as we, as we've done here. We've, you know, we shut down the restaurants, but the, the restaurants, uh, at least, uh, when the weather was okay, they, they, they build a little outdoor seating area, right? So people are trying to get by with this whole thing. So we become creatures who fall asleep very, very rapidly, but can occasionally be woken up to do something and then, and then move again. Um, do we no longer eat? Or, or how, how do, like, you I mean, still need to eat the same? Yeah, Gabby, our metabolism is still running, right? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Them. Yeah, so I mean, normally that's when you get sort of you know nutrients via not IV, but you know what's they can like essentially pump stuff directly into your stomach. Endo tube. Yeah, 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 I think that's it's it's all smoothies all the time in this new world. <laughs> Only liquid food. Right. So the smoothie, big smoothie, takes over, and uh, Amazon, you know, just converts to all smoothie delivery, and. Uh, you would have, um, yeah, there'd have to be like, uh, you, you know how you, like you have an electric car and you need, whenever you park, you need to park next to it and plug into a charger. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. you know, so you, you know, you were going to connect to a smoothie machine. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, knowing that you could pass out at any time, basically you, you, you would always be traveling between hookups to smoothie machines. And so, you know, um, the uh, you'd get out of the subway car and the first thing everyone would do is crowd around the giant octopus like smoothie machine and um those people who had uh you know apple uh, type connectors would be fighting with the android type people everyone jostling for their particular slots at the smoothie machine um is there anything to be gained from the fa- the fact that people are dreaming extensively is totally fascinating to me. And so before we cure this 
disease. Is there anything we can... I don't know if there's any literature or if you looked saw anything about that. About That just seems like a tremendously powerful uh, resource in terms of figuring, just learning about sleeping and learning about dreaming. Like, here, you got the sleep, sleep uh, you think this is the, the perfect research opportunity for the uh, sleep scientist? Yeah, and, and to find out about dreams and things. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, once you're studying what part of the brain this attacks, and the more you learn about how it affects your ability to keep yourself from sleeping, the more you can help people who have diseases that keep them from sleeping. Um, so for example, if this is a disease that makes people fall asleep all the time, you can actually use stuff from that to help people who can't fall asleep at all. Um, and maybe develop oh, some sort right. of therapy, some sort of drug or I, I, something along those lines that might help them actually cure cool. the insomnia. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the whole sleep aid business would just collapse. You know, there'd be no need yeah. for them. Anymore. Yeah, that's right. The, the melatonin market will finally go under. Right. So I know who's going to save us. Who's going to save us is the military is going to have to start bringing in coffee <laughs> and other stimulants. Uh, what was the treatment for? Was there so? So I assume that. Well, what ultimately what did allow people? Is it a vaccine that we have now? But even prior to that, was there a treatment that was effective? So there were generally not treatments for the main part of the epidemic. It was an epidemic, not a pandemic. Um, so difference is just scale. Um, and eventually there was a development of something which helped some patients called L-DOPA. Um, and this brought some patients out of chronic comas. Um, and, th and these were patients who sometimes had been in comas for like 20, 30 years. Uh, so they'd lost huge chunks of their life to this disease. Um, is that that's in yeah. the movie Awakenings? Is that that? So, yes, yeah, so Awakenings is based on a book that was written essentially biographies of people who succumbed to encephalitis lethargica. So that uh -huh. is actually based on truth. That is uh -huh. about the time period. Um, and uh, overall, though, because this was sort of the advent of medicine, it was still kind of the Wild West. There wasn't really much that they could do. Um, beyond eventually the development of L-DOPA. And there was no vaccine made because we didn't really know it was a virus. I think the only, the, it took until 2010 for people to identify virus-like particles um, within the, the brain samples of these patients. Whoa, 2010, 10 years? Yeah. Amazing. Um, and, then, and then to, like, why is it not around now? So that or is it, and we just don't. It's probably it not. Um, these things kind of just happen. Um, it seems like it wasn't always the most reproductively competent virus, um, <laughs> and particularly now we are much much better at public health than we were in New York in the 1920s. Um, so I can imagine that that is a pretty significant factor. Um, and but interestingly, it didn't seem to pop up just for you know, the 1920s. Um, so there are some scientists who go and try to, you know, link back historical accounts of similar diseases and see, does this fit the diagnosis? Um, so there are outbreaks um, that are thought to be the same disease in England in 1529, Italy in 1597, Germany uh, from 1672 to 75, Sweden from 1754 to 57, and Italy again from 1890 to 
1891. So this, it, it was around for a while and it may have eventually just, you know, either fizzled out or maybe changed species or something like that. Um, I think it probably fizzled out more than anything, but who knows, you know, maybe, maybe it's just going in some corner of the world and it's just really a very low track, not really transmitted too many times and was fizzling out there somewhere. Yeah. That yeah. is the creepiest thing. It's like, like the, every villain from the end of some horror movie. It's like, <laughs> reaching up out of the grave yeah yeah or what's his Hannibal Lecter he's just walking away you know um so Matt uh any lessons from history for this series? um yeah don't do the things that they did during historical epidemics um and, uh, <laughs> take advantage of the fact that we actually understand viruses and contagion much better now yeah yeah although it has it has continually shocked me that uh Regardless of the controversy around masks, which is as stupid as can be, but but the fact that it's the 21st century and things like masks and washing your hands still remain the an effective front line and in some ways the best front line we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's right. For that, so uh, even though the vaccine is slowly making its way out there, those of us who don't have it, such as myself, we still. Shields up. Keep your masks on. Keep washing hands. Um, Matt, at what point will roving emergency squads of historians of science be enlisted? Um, and what will well, they do? As soon as they start paying us, and then we'll, we'll get to <laughs> for the right. That yeah. that may be a little while though. Yeah, yeah, they're going to hold out for the highest price. I understand. That's fair enough. Um, uh, Gabby, what would, what, what is, uh, are there any mysteries left in this thing that are still mysteries today in terms of like um, some bizarre virologists to study? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, we don't really know what caused it. Um, yeah. One of the theories is it's a virus based on the fact that they, you know, isolated some stuff. Um, some people aren't convinced they really think it's autoimmune. Um, so I think it's still a huge question mark. Who knows if we'll ever, if we'll ever solve it. Um, and, uh, it's just the case of, you know, this was the time when they weren't, people weren't taking good medical records. So I guess be thankful that, uh, now scientists are, are hoarders and, you know, hospitals are going to write literally everything down, uh, because it's always helpful in the future. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Actually, this is something to uh, remember. To, we can honor the humble uh, paperwork or digital <laughs> paperwork, right? That every every bit you suffer going through that, and I'm sure all the uh, the doctors and nurses and staff who have to do all that stuff, it really does build up a tremendous... Uh, it is part of the armor of humanity against uh, disease, so good stuff. Um, well, thank thank you, Bill. Um, I hope we kept you and all our listeners awake during this thing, or if not, that this is a dream you're having and it's amazing. And, um, if you could subscribe to dreams, I'm sure you would. I'm sure you'd like to choose the genre of the dream, but say la vie. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to this pod dream cast, um, do so. Do so right now on the app you're using right now and send us your thoughts send us your comments be like rude be like 
Bill, be like all the wonderful people who write in to the mailbag. Become part, become part of the mailbag. Join the mailbag. And um, we'll read your thoughts, questions, suggestions, and ideas for ifs uh, on the air. And uh, as I said, if you your idea gets chosen like Bill's, um, you become a super ifer. If you get two ideas, you would become super duper. And Matt is signing off. Good night and farewell. See everybody. Gabby, will you join me for the closing ritual? Absolutely, I will. In which we... Would you explain it to the, uh, yes. the peoples? In our closing ritual, we scream the name of the show in a combination of, you know, terror and awe of all of the ifs that still remain out there to assail us. <laughs> Hiding in the Amazon. And when we think of them spawning and rising out of the ground and entering the airstream, we cannot help but scream. What? what? The... <laughs>